The following audio is brought to you by Summerside Community Church in London, Ontario. For more information on Summerside, visit us online at www.summersidechurch.ca. Today we're going to continue in the first chapter of Mark. This is our Gospel of Mark series, The Lion and the Lamb Revealed. Before we get into the text this morning, let's do some review. At the start of chapter 1, we start with John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah. John is sent to get people ready for the ministry of Jesus. Then the baptism and testing of Jesus comes right after, followed by the start of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And Jesus begins proclaiming the good news with a simple message about the coming kingdom of God and a call to repent and believe. Jesus begins to gather disciples, starting with two pairs of brothers who were called by Jesus to leave their family fishing business and follow him. Last week we saw Jesus' authority at play as he shut down and cast out a demon while he was preaching. And this is Jesus' first display of authority and power. And people start to wonder who this guy is. Jesus is quick to shut up the demon, keep him quiet, lest he reveal who Jesus really is. And Jesus doesn't want people to have a demonic faith, which is believing out of fear. He doesn't want to cause too much stir too soon as well. He is a man on a mission, and he has work to do. Jesus doesn't want his popularity to get in the way of his ministry. Eric, could you pull me back a little bit? Just a little bit, thank you. Today we're going to continue right where we left off in chapter 1. What we're going to see is that Jesus is a man on a mission. He has a plan, he has a strategy, and he's going, that he's going to accomplish. He isn't going to get distracted by what's going on, what people think. He isn't going to get comfortable in one place. He's going to continue to be on the move so that more people can hear his message. Unlike a typical influencer or politician or entertainer of today, who's looking for more engagement, more followers, and trying to go where anybody wants him to go, To get their message across, to become as big as possible, Jesus' mission is people, not popularity. Jesus isn't distracted or tempted by the masses and the crowds or or a positive response in one town. Jesus isn't a people pleaser. He's not going to do what his disciples expect or desire. But Jesus' mission is determined by his Father in heaven, not his followers on earth. And Jesus is concerned about his ultimate mission, which is to become the Savior of of the world. So we're going to begin. I'm going to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 29. This is the second half of Mark. We're going to go to the end of chapter 1, walking through the text. We're going to look at three ways we can live like Jesus every day. This is a lot of text. We've got about you know, 26 or 16 verses. So we're going to take our time. We're going to get through all of it. We don't want to miss anything. But that's going to be most of our, our job today, is looking through this second half, ending chapter 1, um, we, we are trying to get through Mark in one by the end of the year, so um, we're not going to spend two years doing this. So sometimes we're going to have to go a little faster than we, maybe we would like, but we got, we got lots to cover. So we're going to get into this. Let me, before I begin, let me, let me pray and ask God to reveal his word to us. Father, you are good. We are trusting you as we open your word, knowing that we're coming face to face with who you are, who you've revealed yourself to be in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we pray that by your spirit, which you've poured out into this world and uh, given as a gift to all believers, may you awaken our hearts to see Jesus 
as the God-man, as the man that we are called to follow and obey, and the one who has given his life for us so that we can live forever. And not only that, but live every day in obedience to you in the righteousness of Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 29, we're going to take it a couple of verses at a time. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. So it, as you can see, this is right after the previous scene. They were at the synagogue. This is the Sabbath day. They, were, they went to do their worship. Jesus was, was preaching. He was teaching. And this is where he cast out the demon. And immediately after that, it's one of Mark's favorite words, immediately after that, some of your translations may say that, as soon as they left the synagogue, they'll go to Peter's house. Now, if you go to Capernaum today, which is not called Capernaum, it's called something else, but if you go there, um, you can actually go to the synagogue that Jesus taught at, and very close by, you can go to Peter's house. Very, most archaeologists are very confident this is Peter's house and this is the synagogue. And they're very close to each other. This is not a far walk. It is the Sabbath. You can't walk very far on the Sabbath. So this makes sense. It's actually really neat. If you actually go to Peter's house, there's this church built over top of it. And the floor is made of glass. You can actually see that the, there's an early ancient church that was built on top of, or Peter's house was renovated to an early church. And you can kind of see the Christian graffiti or the Christian symbols that are there um, today, which is actually really neat. And that's what I love about the Gospel of Mark and, and even all the Bible. We're talking about real places. We're talking about real people. So that's, that's verse 29. Um, and then in verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. Another thing to notice, remember, Mark is getting his information He's getting this account from Peter. This is Peter's house. This is uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Notice also that Peter is married. First clue. You have to be married to have a mother-in-law. I know that sounds, that sounds obvious, but the Catholic Church hasn't picked this up. So, seriously. Um, so Jesus was married. We don't know what... We, we don't have a lot of information about Peter's wife. Um, you know, we don't know if he's, he's just... She's always there or if she's at home, or if she's passed on. We can only speculate, but we know, do know later that Peter is said to travel with his wife in 1 Corinthians 9 to 5. And so the point is that Peter was married. And, uh, and this is not a big deal, again, unless you're Catholic who believes that church leaders shouldn't be married, which goes beyond what the Bible teaches. And we say amen to that, don't we? So the situation here is that Peter's mother-in-law is very sick. We don't know what she was sick with, but Luke tells us, Luke's the doctor, Mark's not a doctor, so Luke tells us that she had a high fever. Ancient world had two types of fevers. There's a, a low fever and a high fever. High fever is the bad one. So what we do know is that she's very sick, and she's in bed, she can't do anything. So I'm, I'm sure Peter's thinking, if Jesus has authority over demons, maybe he's, he can do other stuff, you know? We, this, is, this would be Jesus' first miracle. It's about to be performed right here. Because nothing has really happened yet, according to Mark, in this gospel. So maybe Peter's wondering, hey, you know, I got my mother-in-law. Is anything you can do about that? Possibly. And, and Peter really hasn't realized who Jesus is. He's just been called to follow this rabbi. He doesn't know the full story of what Jesus reveals himself to be. So this is what happens next. Verse 31. So he went to her, took her hand, helped her up, 
the fever left her and she began to wait on them. Just as a, as a reminder, we don't have the text on the screen uh, and that's intentional so that you follow along in your Bible. So if you don't have your Bible, make sure you grab it in the seat back, use your phone, we, you know, Wi-Fi, you got to download it, you got to get it done. But we want you to be following along in your Bibles here. That's, that's something that uh, we're passionate about here at Summerside. This is amazing. Okay, so Jesus completely heals this woman. Notice how Jesus approaches her and heals her. You know, Jesus isn't like Shrek. You know, if you've seen Shrek, Shrek comes crashing into Fiona's uh, tower and he goes over and takes her by the shoulders and shakes her and says, wake up! Like that. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus comes very gently, grabs her hand and lifts her up. I, I kind of think of a knight taking, the lady, taking a lady by the hand and leading her down out of a carriage or, or down the stairs. He's very gentle. And like we just sang, Jesus is strong and kind. He has the authority to heal, but he is gentle. Contrast this with the previous scene where, where Jesus, there's like yelling and screaming and, and uh, there's shouting and there's commanding and spirits are being taken out. It's very different. It's a public scene. This is in a private home. Very personal touch where Jesus is just taking her by the hand, doesn't say a word, and lifts her up. It's very beautiful. Notice the response from the woman as well. She began to wait on them, it says. And this shows a couple of things. First, the healing is immediately and utterly effective. Demonstrating Jesus' authority to heal sickness. There's no recovery day that we usually need, you know, when, after we've had a, a long day of a fever. Usually your recovery day that you need to like before you kind of start doing the tasks that you need to do. No, there's none of that. She immediately gets up and she starts to serve. And second, this shows the heart of gratitude and service to Jesus that this woman has. She's the host after all, and this is what she wants to do. She doesn't complain about having to serve or begrudge her role as host. She has a heart overflowing with thanksgiving and service. So they spend the rest of the day at Peter's house. It's important to understand that the Sabbath day begins and ends at sundown. That's important. We kind of start our days in the morning. And they end in the evening. So actually they end kind of the next day starts the next morning. The, the Jewish days, they start in the evening. So the day starts in the evening. Let's just get your head wrapped around that. So then this is going to make sense to you. So the Sabbath day starts in the evening. And the next evening, the next day starts. So as soon as the sun goes down, that's the end of the Sabbath day. Do you understand? I know it seems simple, but it's easy to, easy thing to miss. So if, so if we look in the next verse, in verse 32 and 33, this will make sense. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. So everyone was waiting for the Sabbath to end so they could bring the sick and demon-possessed. So word has gotten out somehow. I guess every, this is not that big of a town. Everyone was at the synagogue and they saw what happened. They're like, this guy could could be something. So let's, uh, let's bring our sick people and our demon-possessed people for him to heal. So as soon as the sun goes down, and they say about three stars in the sky, when you see three stars in the sky, you can, the Sabbath day ends, um, they come out and they bring their sick, they bring their demon-possessed to be healed by Jesus. So the, and it says the whole town is at, gathered at the door. This could be about a thousand people, 1,500 people. This is a lot of people. So what does Jesus do? Does he send them away? No, he sees them, 
He heals them and he casts out demons. Verse 34 says, says this, And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Same kind of situation as we saw in the previous um, section there. He doesn't want... He doesn't want to have... We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. I, notice there's a dis- distinction between the sick and the demon-possessed. Now, a modern temptation is to, is to kind of read away you know, sickness and demon possession and try to smush them together um, because you know, we're uncomfortable with demons. Uh, and the text just doesn't allow for that. Mark makes it very clear that demon possession was a very real, pervasive problem in Galilee. This was a dark place. Recall Pastor Leo referencing Isaiah 9. Remember the Christmas passage. Isaiah 9 2 says this, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. That verse, if you look in the context, is talking about Galilee. Specifically, this area around the Sea of Galilee. This is a dark place where people walk in darkness, deep darkness, that is overcome with the kingdom of darkness, that manifested itself in having a high amount, degree of demon possession. And Jesus, as a sign of the coming kingdom of light, is casting out demons and is ministering in Galilee as a fulfillment of this prophecy. It's important to understand. Again, Jesus doesn't allow the demons to speak. Why is that? Let's just review that again. Why doesn't Jesus want the demons to say who he really was? We did cover this a bit last week, but I'll just say briefly. Jesus wants to define himself on his own terms. And Jesus is looking for genuine, saving faith, not demonic faith that is based on fear. The demons believe and tremble. Remember, Jesus is a man on a mission and he has his father's timing and plan on how he's going to reveal himself. There's two kind of concerns that Jesus has, I think, here that are kind of unsaid. The first is that he wants to have this genuine faith. He doesn't want the demons to say, like, everyone should be afraid because this man is is the Messiah. He doesn't want people to believe in him simply because the demons say so. The second one is that he doesn't want people to just have him be a miracle worker. He doesn't want him them to believe like, okay, he's going to, someone that can do stuff for us. He can heal. He can cast out demons. He can, he can be uh, this, this, this magician guy. So he's trying to avoid those two things. And we'll see very soon how he tries to narrow in his mission very soon. So let's look at the next verse. Jesus spends a long evening healing, casting out demons at Peter's house. Who knows how long that is? Um, you know, at some point that ends and Jesus goes to sleep. I don't know. I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess midnight. That's what I'll just say. That just sounds like a round number to me, but who knows? It could have been later. It could have been a long time. If you got to go through a queue of about a thousand people with all their sick people, that's, that could be a long time. So I don't think he sleeps very long because verse 35 says this very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Again, I'm just guessing. I'm going to say this at 4 a.m. This is my guess. Now, Jesus is not some CEO, productivity guru, life hacker that sets his alarm to get up early so that he can win at life. Jesus doesn't have an iPhone. He doesn't have an alarm clock. 
for some reason, he's just up. Maybe he had a specific strategy. He like had a circadian rhythm, you know, thing in order to, to get up at an early time. Maybe he just wasn't sleeping well and he woke up. Maybe God's spirit woke him up. We don't really know for sure, but he is up. Jesus gets up and he goes to a solitary place, a deserted place, a wilderness place, a lonely place. This is the same type of place where Jesus was earlier in the chapter when he was tempted in the desert. The same word is used for the wilderness as it is for this solitary place. It's Eremos. The same word is used. This is probably not the exact same location. It's probably not the exact spot, but it has the same idea. We are meant to make that connection. He isn't getting up early to get his workout in or some form of getting after it or to crush it at life. He's getting up to, he's getting up and going to a solitary place to pray. Luke tells us that this was a, a regular habit of Jesus in the coming context. During his ministry in Galilee, and I'm sure throughout his life, um, this is what Luke 5.16 says. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So don't, don't think this is a one-time thing that Jesus goes and does this. This is a regular spending time alone in prayer to God. Why is that, do you think? Why does Jesus do this regularly? Why does he need to pray so much? I mean, he is God, after all. Isn't prayer for when you're in trouble and you need God's help? Or do you want to be closer to God? Can't Jesus handle things on his own? There's two things we're going to look at. First, Jesus is as much a human being as you and I. And Jesus needs the sustaining presence of God as much as any of us do. Human beings, to thrive, need to have a divine connection. And Jesus' soul is satisfied and fulfilled in his prayer, praying with the Father as a human being, created in the image of God, the perfect representation of that image. So when we see Jesus praying, we should be learning as much about what we need as what he needs as well. Second, Jesus prays because he is God. As the second person of the Trinity, Jesus is accustomed to eternal fellowship and communion between the Father and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' natural state, his default is prayer and connection with his Father in heaven. Jesus prays because he is the God-man. And he is typifying what it means to be human for us. He's seeking out his greatest pleasure and joy and comfort in the presence of the Father through prayer. But isn't Jesus always with God the Father and the Holy Spirit? Yes, that is true. Jesus is indeed in communion with the presence of God, save for when he is on the cross in that, in that moment. But something about his humanness, his surroundings, deadens this connection. He needs to escape to a deserted, lonely, solitary wilderness place to have a deep connection with God. More about that later. Meanwhile, in Capernaum, Peter and company are getting up after a long night, probably sleeping in. They wake up to find that Jesus is missing. Verse 36. Simon and his companions went to look for him. Notice that Simon Peter is the main character again. Um, even, even though Andrew, James, and John were also staying at Peter's house, this is, you know, Peter is, I think, remembering this because he was stressed out and it probably has a stress memory. They, they, form, they seem to form a search party and they look everywhere for him. 
So Jesus didn't leave a note. He doesn't have a cell phone. He just peaced out. So he's gone. So many problems created when, when you don't have these, you can't communicate. So we've got to get into that mindset that they can't just say, hey, I'm over here. There's no like location he can find him. So they, they spend the day looking for Jesus. So I recall another time later, and you should as well, when Peter is looking for Jesus early on a Sunday morning. I think of Peter and John racing to the tomb to see if Jesus was there, but only to find the empty tomb and the grave closed by themselves. Now, I wonder if Peter and Mark are trying to make this connection. I don't, I don't know, but I, I find that Peter trying to find Jesus in a frantic running thing is a common theme in the, in the Bible. You can tell that they were exhausted and stressed by how they react when they find Jesus. Notice in verse 37. When they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. This is both an exasperation and excitement. It's almost a rebuke. Like, where have you been? They're frustrated that Jesus ran off without telling them, and they don't understand why. We know Jesus. This is Jesus' MO. This is just what he does. You may also think of Mary and Joseph looking for 12-year-old Jesus in Jerusalem. Family had gone to Jerusalem for, for, as per Jewish custom, and when they left their oldest son behind, they assumed that he had joined the group with his hanging out with his friends, his 12-year-olds do, assuming he was just hanging out with some other kids. Realizing he was missing, they rushed back to Jerusalem and looked everywhere for him. And where did they find him? In the temple with his heavenly father. And I can see this wilderness or solitary place for Jesus being some sort of temple for him, where he would be with his father in prayer. And also notice that this is also on a Sunday morning. I don't know if that's significant, but I, it's interesting to see that Jesus is going to worship on the Lord's day. And I wonder if the early Christians would be like, hey, he's doing, that's, that's what we're doing. We do that. I don't know. When the disciples found Jesus, they were also excited because everyone wanted to come to see Jesus. Everyone is looking for you. Jesus is super popular. The whole town is wondering where he is, if he's going to do more miracles. The disciples are expecting and perhaps asking Jesus to come back to Capernaum and keep up the good work. But Jesus is a man on a mission. He has other plans. So Jesus says in verse 38, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Jesus is very clear here that his mission is not to be a miracle worker only. This is not his primary ministry. He knows that people are just coming to see and receive the miracles and the healings. They aren't coming to hear him preach. He is called to preach. And he's looking for people to respond to his preaching and be changed by his teaching to prepare the way for the kingdom of God. Look back to verse 15. Back to verse 15, it says this, at Jesus' message. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is his message. And it's possible that this was getting lost in the midst of the crowds and the excitement. And Jesus wants to make sure that all of Galilee is saturated with the good news of the coming kingdom. 
and with a message of repentance. So when his true identity is revealed, they will respond in faith. Notice that Jesus says, this is why I have come. And I believe this is him talking about his calling to the world. Calling from God and incarnation into the world, not not why he came to the desert or why he came to Galilee. This is Jesus staying on mission. This is why I'm here. I'm here to preach, proclaim the kingdom of God and call people to repentance. The time has come. The wait is over. This is it. Don't miss it. The point is not to point to himself as the Messiah and say, look at me. Look what I can do. Aren't I amazing? No, he's saying that God is doing something in our day and you better get on board before it's too late. Jesus and his disciples subsequently continue throughout Galilee, going from town to town, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. It doesn't mention more healings at at this point, except for the two that are coming up. Perhaps it is a given that he's still healing, or perhaps Jesus is more inclined towards preaching and exorcism since what happened in Capernaum. We do know at some point during his preaching tour that Jesus performs the greatest miracle yet, healing a leper. And that's what we see in verse 40. Let's go there right now. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Leprosy in the ancient world is is kind of a disease that's hard to pin down. It, It could refer to dozens and dozens of skin conditions that manifest similarly. And in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, there's a long description on what to do with skin conditions, what to do about them. And if a skin condition was bad enough and deemed contagious, it had significant implications for that person's life. Leviticus 13.45 says this, Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkept, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone, they must live outside the camp. The thinking was that that to protect the rest of the camp, the disease needed to be quarantined. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's very barbaric. That's very, man, how could they do that to people, to to quarantine them? And, you know, someone with, that that just doesn't seem right. And we recall that we did this to healthy people for a long time. So let's be not too quick to judge um, here. The issue in that day was that more rules were put in place on top of Leviticus to make sure this rule was kept. Now, I don't know what it's like to have more arbitrary rules like layered on top of each other in order to protect other people. I wouldn't know what that's like at all. I kind of try not to be sarcastic. It's, uh, I've, been told, I've been told I shouldn't do that. Um, let's just move on. There were huge social implications if you had leprosy. No one was allowed to touch you. No one was allowed to come near you. You could not participate at, and worship at the temple. You were ostracized from the community even from your own family. This man's life has been completely ruined by this disease. He doesn't just need physical restoration. That's what's different in this than some other accounts of healing. He doesn't just need physical restoration. He needs social and spiritual restoration. And that's why he says, you can make me clean. He doesn't say, you can heal me. The concern is that he be made clean. It's not the physical side effects, but the social and spiritual side effects that come along with his physical condition. 
Healing leprosy was considered nearly impossible in that day. In the Old Testament, there were only two cases of someone being healed of leprosy. Miriam in Numbers 12 and Naaman in 2 Kings verse 5. And both were extraordinary circumstances and by no means were either of them healed in the way that Jesus is about to heal this man. But one thing remains the same. They were directly healed by God himself. Let's see what happens next. Let's see verse 41. Jesus was indignant. Hold on. Time out. Time out. What did that say? Did that say indignant? Do you guys have indignant? Man, uh, whoever heard of Jesus being indignant? What does indignant even mean? Some of you are wondering. It doesn't sound very Christ-like for sure. A dictionary definition of indignant is feeling or showing anger because of something unjust or unworthy. Does that make sense to you? Most other translations have compassion or pity. Maybe you have that in your translation today. But that's completely different from indignant. So what do we make of this? This is not an issue of translation, but of transcription. You know how some people will say, how can you trust the Bible because it's been copied so many times? How do you, how do you trust it? Well, the irony is, the reason we trust that we have the text that we have today is because it's been copied so many times. There are so many copies of the Bible that we can compare them to recreate the original text. You can actually see errors. You can see them visibly by looking at the different copies. Now, Pastor Leo, I'm sure, is going to explain this in more detail when we get to the ending of Mark, which is fun. There are very rare instances, though, when there is a disagreement among scholars as to which word is original. And this is one of those rare instances. Either it says, Jesus felt indignant, or he felt compassion. So which is it? Compassion sounds right. So many scholars have gone with that. However, it's because indignant doesn't sound right that some scholars have argued that it likely was the original word used. And a well-meaning scribe, having a, a, a similar word, that was correcting, he thought he was correcting an error by changing it to compassion, as the words are somewhat similar. That's the other argument. The good news is, I don't think we have to choose, because both make sense in context. Compassion makes sense. That's an easy one. Jesus had compassion on hurting people. It says other places in the Bible where Jesus had compassion. That's obvious. That's a given. Jesus had compassion on Jesus' mother-in-law when he, when he healed her, even though it doesn't say that explicitly. Jesus was a compassionate person. He saw people in their hurting and pain and lifted them out. In the context here, indignant can also make sense. Let's think about things that make Jesus angry. Demonic oppression. Makes him angry, for sure. Religious hypocrisy and legalism. Definitely. Injustice. 100%. People getting in the way of his ultimate mission and purpose. Remember when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter? It was when Peter was trying to distract him from his ultimate mission. All these things are represented in this one man, in this situation. Demons can affect the physical world in sickness. This man has experienced oppression from religious elites that have heaped on more rules that are necessary on top of the ones in Leviticus. He has experienced injustice because he has been as a social outcast and lost his family and friends and community. 
He's also about to get in the way of Jesus's mission from what he's about to do coming up. For all these reasons, Jesus could be indignant. But it's by no means indignant at this man as a leper in need. Jesus has compassion as well. We know this because of what happens next. So we're going to continue reading in verse, uh, verse 41. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. No one had ever touched the leper before, at least not like on purpose. This was a game-changing miracle. He could have said, be clean. And that would be amazing enough. Before this, there was no concept that you could touch a leper and cleanse him. Only could go one way. You can only defile yourself, but things don't work that way with Jesus. Jesus' purity and holiness can extend to others without him being defiled. It sends just as much about his righteousness as it does about his power. Here's what happens next. Verse 43. Got to keep moving. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. This is where some of the indignation could be coming from as well, because Jesus is frustrated. Jesus literally casts him out from them and sends him away as if he were a demon. He casts him out. He sends him out. The same language is used there. And Jesus is concerned with a few things. First, he's concerned about the man's social and spiritual restoration, right? That's his concern. And to be restored to society, he has to obey what was commanded in Leviticus 14. He's got to go through the rituals. Otherwise, he remains unclean. And notice Jesus' respect for the Mosaic law. He observes the Sabbath. He also wants this man to obey the cleansing practice in Leviticus for lepers. You know, we're still under the the old covenant there until the kingdom is inaugurated with, with Christ. Something to note. Second, Jesus wants this to be a testimony for the religious leaders. As a testimony to them, it says, at the end of verse 44. He wants to plant those seeds of faith in their hearts as well. Thirdly, and most importantly, Jesus doesn't want to make a big fuss about this because it goes against his strategy. Jesus wants to preach as his main mission. He doesn't want to just be a healer. He wants to preach in the synagogue. And this healing is so amazing to everybody that now he can't go anywhere. As a man on a mission, it's frustrating when people don't cooperate with you. And Jesus' mission, thankfully, is not completely derailed. He's still able to accomplish what he came to do. Okay, that was a lot. We, that was us walking through those 16 verses. And I, I want you to see what I'm seeing in the text. Jesus is a man on a mission. He's not going to be distracted by popularity. He's concerned with people. He doesn't allow himself to get drawn into pleasing those around him. He spends time alone with his father in heaven. He doesn't want to get typecast into a miracle worker. He wants to preach. And just as Jesus is a man on a mission, we are a church on a mission. As followers of Jesus, we should seek to imitate Jesus in our everyday lives. So what can we learn from Jesus from this passage? How can we live like Jesus every day? 
based on these verses. There are three behaviors we can imitate as a church on a mission. So let's go through these three. The first is a personal touch. The first behavior we can adopt from Jesus is a personal touch. It's the personal touch of Jesus that stands out here in both the healing of of Peter's mother-in-law and the healing of the leper. Jesus takes the woman's hand and helps her up. Jesus touches the untouchable leper. Despite the crowds at the door and the people coming from all over to see him, Jesus has a personal touch. Jesus sees people in their need and and sees them as image bearers of God. He both has compassion for them and is indignant at the sinful world that caused their condition. And we need to have that same heart to the people in our lives, in our everyday lives. To see people as image bearers of God, to have compassion on them, to be truly indignant at the state of the world that causes their pain. We may not be able to heal them as Jesus did, but we can hold their hand. We can put an arm around their shoulder. We can hug them. We can sit with them. We can walk them through the pain and we can appeal to the God of healing to heal them if he is willing. If you have a hard time loving people, try by starting in a small way like this. How can you do something small, a personal touch that can make a big difference? We need to develop the heart for people that Jesus had to touch the untouchable, to personally care for those in need. And as a church, we need to continually welcome those who have been outcast from society. We need to have open doors to those who would come to Jesus for healing. We need to have open arms to welcome those who are seeking social connection and spiritual renewal. Jesus desires us to be his hands and offer his personal touch of healing to the world. And this heart for people and love for others doesn't just come out of nowhere. It doesn't necessarily come natural for all of us. We need to tap into the source of love to overflow to us and in us, which is why, number two, Jesus also had spiritual habits that we can model. The second behavior we can adopt as imitators of Jesus is his spiritual habits. Habits have been a very trendy topic recently, especially with the smash hit Atomic Habits by James Clear. Subsequently, Christian teachers are rebranding the spiritual disciplines because discipline sounds hard, doesn't it? Uh, As spiritual habits to make them more accessible to modern ears. And soon they're going to be called spiritual life hacks for the next generation. I'm going to start it. I'm starting it. In these verses, we get a glimpse into some of Jesus's spiritual habits or practices. One of them is we see him practicing the Sabbath. Pastor Leo is going to touch on, on the Sabbath. It's a lot about the Sabbath in Mark. So he's going to touch on that in a few weeks, so I won't go into too much detail. But Jesus practiced the Sabbath as part of his spiritual rhythm. And I'll suffice it to say that Jesus had a weekly spiritual rhythm of rest and worship, and so should we. But it's really Jesus' habit of silence, solitude, and prayer that is the clearest in this passage. Jesus found it necessary and delighted to spend time alone with God. Jesus is distancing himself from the hustle and the bustle and busyness of life and all the noise and the people to quiet himself and connect with his Father in heaven. And you are fooling yourself if you think we don't need to do this often as well. I don't think you need to go to the literal desert, though you might consider it on occasion. Jesus teaches later that when you pray, you should go into a little room by yourself and pray. And you don't need your phone. You don't need anything with you. 
Jesus didn't have anything like that. Now, Jesus did have his Bible memorized, so maybe take your Bible with you. He didn't have his Bible with him, but he had it up here. So if you're thinking, I don't need my Bible with me when I have time, well, get it memorized and you can, you don't need your Bible with you. There you go. Um, but you need to find your Aramos, whether that's a chair or a room or maybe on occasion doing a spiritual retreat. If this is new for you, spending time with God or praying to God as a regular thing, take it easy. Take it one step at a time. Spend five minutes in quiet prayer with God, or maybe just five minutes of silence alone with God, inviting his presence to be with you. Make sure you set your alarm five minutes early so you won't be late for work. You can get up. You know, speaking of work, the morning commute is a great time to spend some time praying alone with God. And don't miss out on that opportunity. For those of you who have a little more practice at this, try to spend more time in stillness and quiet before God and more time praying. Now, I find it easier to read the Bible than to pray to God or to sit in stillness before him because you're actually doing something. You feel like you're accomplishing something when you read the Bible and you really should read your Bible. But what's also good is praying to God as well, spending time praying to God. So make sure you add in that time where you're actually communing with God the Father as well. So don't miss out on the time you can spend with God. The more you practice this, I believe, the more you will enjoy it and desire it like Jesus did. We need to be focusing in on the God of love so that we can love others as well. God wants your attention. And God has attention to give to you. Don't think that you are trying to draw him in. Like you're trying to do something to get his attention. He's ready and willing to be with you at any point. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this. God has infinite attention, infinite leisure to spare for each one of us. He doesn't have to take us in the line. You're as much alone with him as if you're the only thing he'd ever created. That's a tough one. So just let that sink in for a second. Let me just read it again. God has infinite attention, infinite leisure to spare for each one of us. He doesn't have to take us in the line. You're as much alone with him as if you were the only thing he'd ever created. God is infinite and his presence is personal. So when he's with you, he's fully with you. We have access to God's personal presence through the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus did. And this is why Jesus had to go and be with God the Father so he could give his personal presence out into the world. And that's what we have access to. And he's modeling that for us and spending that time alone with God in prayer to be through the Holy Spirit, to be with God. You guys can do that too. We don't need to go to to the temple. You can actually be with God where you are. But you gotta, you got to distance yourself. You have to remove the distractions. You need to find a place alone to do that. Through Christ, we can enjoy the same intimacy with God that he had. But it'll take practice and perseverance. Reducing distractions, prioritizing time with God through his word, in prayer, and in silence and solitude. And we don't just do this for ourselves, but to change our desires to align with Jesus's mission. And that's why we also need to have what Jesus had, which was a kingdom focus. That's the third behavior we can imitate of Jesus, a kingdom focus. Jesus was not distracted by his popularity. He was not drawn in by the crowds. His mission was primary. His focus was on the kingdom of God and its announcement. 
Think of Jesus' command to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all this, everything else will be added unto you. For us, we need to stay focused on the kingdom of God and its mission to reach all nations with the gospel, to transform the world through imitating Christ and proclaiming the good news. There are so many things that can distract us from this primary objective. We are a church on a mission. Everyday disciples that make disciples every day. And that is what we get from Jesus. Living out ordinary lives with an extraordinary lifestyle that submits to Jesus as our Lord. Raising up families that know Christ and make him known. Working in our day jobs in such a way that honors and glorifies Christ every day. Engaging in the work of the church in this mission around the world to see people come to faith in Christ. We need to have the same kingdom focus that Jesus had and be willing to say no to what the people, what people want so we can say yes to what God wants. So that's how we can imitate Jesus as a man on a mission with a personal touch, spiritual habits, and a kingdom focus. But it's not enough to have Jesus as your spiritual guru. He isn't just an example to follow. If we are getting that from the text today, we've completely missed it. It's not about what we can do for Jesus, what Jesus can do for you. His mission right now, because he's still a man on a mission, is to transform you by his power into an agent that continues his kingdom ministry. He knows that in this way he will be more effective. Like leprosy, sin is a disease that affects every aspect of our lives. It is socially damaging. It is personally devastating. It is spiritually destructive. It is the ultimate cause of all physical deterioration and disease. And until we come to the point of recognizing our sin and coming to Jesus, we will never be healed. We will never be made clean. All of us must come to the point of this leper after trying everything else. We must come to Jesus and say, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He is willing. Be clean. You can be cleansed from your sin in the name of Jesus. Through repentance and faith in him. That is his heart for you. And that is his mission. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are a good God. You are great and majestic. And we thank you so much for your word you've given to us by your spirit. We ask now that you would plant the, these seeds in our hearts, that we would be a people on a mission, that we would see people as image bearers of Christ that we would truly recognize the destructive nature of our sin and seek to be cleansed by coming to Jesus on our knees and asking to be cleansed. Father, may you continue to stir up hearts of repentance and faith in each one of us. As we continue to seek you as a community, we trust you to be faithful in moving amongst us. Stir our hearts for the lost, that we would be relentless in our mission. Father, do not leave us. Do not leave us alone, but 
when we get alone, may you be with us. Help each one of us to find a place where we can spend time with you. You delight to be with us. We thank you that you're here with us now, awakening our hearts and stirring us to action. As we just heard your word, may we be those who are doers and not hearers only. May we be those who have ears to hear. Thank you so much for what you're doing in our lives. And we trust you every day to continue your work in us and carry it on to completion. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.